You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we were talking about Isaiah 53. Uh, We did not quite finish the whole chapter. We still have a few verses to complete. Let's go ahead and pick up at verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Now, when we look at this passage, we want to take note of the Chaldean paraphrase. That is the Targum that was used by the Jewish rabbis in which they taught this scripture as they anticipated the coming Christ. Now, in that uh, Aramaic paraphrase, this is the way that they had interpreted this passage. They wrote and said, And it was the pleasure of the Lord to refine and to purify the remnant of his people in order to cleanse their souls from sin, that they might see the kingdom of their Messiah that their sons and daughters might multiply and prolong their days, and those that keep the law of the Lord shall prosper in his pleasure. Now, The reason why I draw this to your attention is because the rabbis were teaching that this passage of Isaiah 53 was very clearly about the Messiah, the person and work of the Messiah, that he is the servant of Yahweh, that he is the suffering servant, Now, notice the the similarity and distinction between our translation and their paraphrase. So that we would say that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. But in the Aramaic, what the rabbis were teaching is this, that in order to cleanse their souls from sin, that they might see the kingdom of their Messiah. Now, notice again, this is a very clear text, a very clear teaching of the rabbis, that the one who is suffering, the one who is giving up himself as an offering for guilt, is the one who is purifying and cleansing his people, so that his people may see him, the Messiah, and his kingdom that he comes to bring. Now, that's an important fact to note, that we understand clearly that the rabbinical school had thought that this passage was about the Messiah. It wasn't something that Paul made up years later or that the Gentile church invented later on after the synagogue rejected Jesus. No, no. This was the teaching of the rabbis as they were anticipating the coming Christ, the Christ in his kingdom, the Messiah and exactly what the Messiah would do in order to inaugurate his kingdom. Well, what is it that he's going to do? He will suffer. He will die. He will bleed, and he will be crucified for his people, for that remnant, the ones who are cleansed, 
their souls are purified, and their eyes are opened that they may see his kingdom. Now, going back to our text, our translation, we have again that it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Now, this also is something very important in our understanding here. This was the will of the Father. The rejection of Jesus by his own people was not an accident. It was not like it was something that the Father had not known or the Son or the Holy Spirit, that somehow the people of the Jews rejected their king. Of course, this is kind of commonplace sometimes on the radio and the internet with all this uh, silly frenzy of dispensationalism. As if Jesus came to his own and for some unforeseen reason, his own did not receive him. And so Jesus had to go to plan B. That is, well, let's work with the Gentiles for a while. And as the dispensationalists would call it, the great parentheses that God went to plan B with the Gentiles. But at the end of time, he'll have to go back to plan A. So he has to remove the Gentiles from the earth. Now, that's complete nonsense and silliness. We know from the text itself very clearly that it is the Father's will to crush him. It is the Father's will so that we would be purified, that we would be cleansed from our sin, that our guilt would be removed by him. For again, remember in this whole chapter, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the image that God wants to imprint upon our hearts. The true image, the visible image of the invisible God. The incarnate one who comes to suffer for us. Now again, in the New Testament, this is very clear that Jesus did not, uh, uh, he was not surprised when he was rejected. He said the Son of Man must be rejected. He must be crucified and handed over to the religious leaders and the rulers of this age. Why? So that he could be that atoning sacrifice, that substitutionary atonement, that he would die in our stead for our sin, that our wickedness would be imputed to him, and he would take our sin away. And then by faith, we would receive his righteousness as it's imputed to us, that our faith is reckoned as righteousness before the sight of God. This was no surprise to Jesus. It was no surprise to the Father or the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself taught very clearly in John chapter 10 that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord, and he has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And this, of course, he receives from his Father. So again, in John's Gospel, we see that clear distinction between the person of the Father and the person of the Son. The Father sends the Son, and the Son is the sent one. That only the Son was incarnate, only the Son became flesh. The eternal Word dwelt among us as Emmanuel. But it is in these passages that we understand clearly that the will of the Father and the will of the Son are to be one. Yet we also know the account of the passion of the Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. That according to his human nature, when he suffered, and in that night he prayed to the Father. For instance, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, we have the account where Jesus petitions the Father, saying, Father, 
If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But in the Christ, according to his human nature, we see his suffering and his passion. Now remember, God by nature cannot suffer. Yet in the incarnation, he takes upon the human nature in which he can suffer. Now we've talked about this before in the personal union, the divine and human attributes. That of course the divine cannot suffer, but the human can And we've talked about this uh, before when we were looking at Cyril of Alexandria and the unity of the Christ, the one Christ. The churches use the image of a, a sword, a metal, a piece of metal, a steel that is stuck into the flames of a fire. That that flame and the heat of the fire would be like the divine nature and have the divine attributes, such as heat and light. But when that sword, that steel is stuck into the fire, then that steel shares the attributes of fire. Of course, by nature, the the steel, the metal itself cannot burn, it cannot scorch or provide heat or light. But yet when that sword, when that steel is in the flame of the fire, those attributes of the fire are attributed. Now, the sword that is in the fire has that ability to bring light and heat and to burn. But at the same time, what happens when you pound on that sword? Uh, Think of uh, a blacksmith in the forgery and trying to, to make that steel strengthened. And what he does is he pounds that sword with a hammer. Now, the The flame and the fire is not disturbed or weakened by the hammer, but yet it is the sword itself that is pounded. It is the sword itself, that metal, that feels the effects of the blows of the hammer. And so the early church fathers would use this example of understanding the passion of the Christ. For God by nature cannot suffer. But when we're talking about the incarnate God, We're talking about the one who took upon flesh, and in his flesh he was able to die. He was able to suffer. He was able to be beaten, bloodied, and bruised. And all of this for our sin. And it was the will of the Father to crush him, to put him to grief so that his soul makes an offering for guilt, that he becomes that substitutionary atonement the one who dies in our stead, and by his blood we are set free to be the people of God. Now, as we've talked about before, especially in our lectures on Cyril of Alexandria, it's that blood itself, because of the communication of attributes, because of the divine nature, that blood actually sanctifies, that his body, his flesh, actually gives life. Now, according to the human nature by itself, apart from the Incarnation, No human nature can give life in and of itself, for that is not human. No human blood can sanctify and cleanse from sin, for that is neither human either. But in the one Christ, in the incarnation, in the personal union, the divine attributes are communicated to the human nature. So thus in Christ, 
His blood actually sanctifies from sin, and His flesh, His body, actually gives life. Now back to Isaiah 53. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now, one point of clarification here, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. Now, the soul, of course, means his life, that his life is given into death. That nephesh itself is what gives to us the life that we have. So Jesus, of course, gives himself, his very isness, his very soul, his very being, for that's what a nephesh is, that being of who you are. He gives his life for the life of the world. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul will write that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. That Isaiah himself testifies of this before it ever happens, as do all the prophets before and after Isaiah, including all of the apostles in the time of the New Testament. But Jesus is the one who gives himself up. He hands himself over to death as an offering for guilt, that we would be declared innocent in God's sight. Now, notice also in this passage, it tells us that he shall see his offspring. Now, when we're talking about offspring, we're talking about uh, seeds, or specifically, we're talking about the adopted sons of God. Now, remember, back in Isaiah chapter 7, that promise, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel that he is the promised seed. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is eternally begotten, God of God, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Now, he is the one who is promised the Son, the Son that was given to us, the child who was born for us. So in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the son that is promised to us, the one who is born of the virgin in chapter 7, is now given this title of Everlasting Father. Now, as we said back in Isaiah 9, we don't want to confuse the persons of the Blessed Trinity. This does not mean that the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is also the first person of the Trinity, that being the Father. We want to be very clear that we reject any type of modalism, that God was in different modes, that at one time God was in the mode or the character of the Father, and then at another time he was in the mode or the character of the Son, and then still another time he was in the mode or character of the Holy Spirit. Now, we reject modalism completely. We teach Trinity and unity, and unity and Trinity, that there is one divine essence, but we make a distinction in the plurality of persons, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet it is in Isaiah 9 where the Son of God is given the title Everlasting Father. You see, the Son of God, the Incarnate One, becomes the Bridegroom. The groom, the husband who gives his life for the wife, that is the bride, the church, that he is handed over to death, that his bride might be holy, spotless, cleansed, sanctified, without any blemish at all. Now, it's from this husband, the one who takes his wife, the bride, that he has many children. So, in this way, he is called the everlasting father. Thus, from the one Son, who is God by nature, come many sons through rebirth, through the washing of renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, being born from above, that is, with water and the Spirit in holy baptism, through which we are adopted by grace to be children of God. In fact, even more than that, sons of God by adoption, that we are heirs of eternal life. Now, going back to Isaiah 8, that passage that's in between 7 and 9, we hear the words of Jesus that are quoted later on in the epistle to the Hebrews. In particular, Jesus says, Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, he is the one true Son, the only begotten one of the Father, the only eternal one with the Father, eternally begotten. Yet those who are in Christ are a new creation, and there is no condemnation. We become sons adopted by grace. Thus, in John's Gospel, as many who received him were given the right to be children of God. Now, in Isaiah 44, you have that promise that I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. These, of course, are the children of God and my blessing upon your descendants. Where in Isaiah 44, the father is speaking to the son about the Holy Spirit, that I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring, your seed, your sons. Now, we see this, of course, in the New Testament in holy baptism. When we have the promise of the Holy Spirit, that in the waters of baptism, the Spirit is at work, filling and indwelling us. In fact, through the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out upon us and in us. Now, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul talks very clearly about the gift of baptism, water baptism, because there is no other baptism. Spirit baptism is directly connected to water baptism, which is instituted by Jesus. Thus, we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We must not make a silly false dichotomy as if they're two different types of baptism, for we are taught to confess one Lord and one baptism. Now, in Galatians 3, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, well, you have been clothed with Christ. You've put him on. And later on in Galatians 4, Paul will say, Well, 
Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Back to the Isaiah passage, it says, He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. That this is the promise here of the person and work of Christ. That the crucifixion, the suffering of Christ, that he's forsaken by the Father, was not done for no reason at all, but instead for the very purpose of bringing many into the kingdom. That his blood is shed for all humanity. And of course, the promise is that in his death, he shall not die, but he shall live. That that verdict of the human court, of the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and the Levitical priests, and even the Roman court, has been overturned by God. Whereas they have said, guilty, God has said, not guilty, but innocent. And this proclamation is seen in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, here in this passage, we have an inkling of this. We have a a foresight of what is going to come. That when he is crucified and he's suffering on the cross to die, that this will not be the end of him. He shall rise again, and he shall see his offspring, and his days shall be prolonged. This is the promise of the resurrection after the crucifixion. In a very similar way, we see this in Psalm 22, which, of course, we all know as a passage about the passion of the Christ, especially with those beginning words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, of course, these are the words of Jesus from the cross. That Jesus is the high priest. He's petitioning the Father on behalf of his people, on behalf of the entire world, for he is the universal high priest. And he is being forsaken by the Father so that we would not be forsaken by the Father. And in Psalm 22, talking about his passion and his crucifixion, his death, So that later on in Psalm 22, starting at verse 17, he says, I can count all my bones, describing in detail this uh, suffering on the cross. And then he goes on to say, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, we know this passage in Psalm 22 is a very clear description of the passion of the Christ. Yet at verse 22, there's also a clear description of not only the death, but the resurrection of Jesus, as we see here in Psalm 53. For in Psalm 22, at verse 22, we hear this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Although he is hung upon the tree, left to die, crucified, and even buried, yet we see here this promise of resurrection, return from the dead, and of course, ascension into heaven where he continues to live eternally. The human nature was not uh, uh, taken off, taken away, or shed, or just departed from. Instead, 
the Son of God becomes incarnate and is eternally the incarnate Word, eternally the High Priest for us before the Father, that He will tell of the name of the Father to His brothers. Of course, that's a description of the incarnation, that he is flesh of our flesh and blood of our blood and bone of our bone. Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 53, we pick up at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant, He will make many to be accounted righteous, that is, be justified, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, it's in this passage that we learn about justification, that Christ is the just one. He alone is the righteous one. He will make many to be justified, and he shall bear their iniquity. Now, earlier in Isaiah 45, we ended on the note that in Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, again, you have that connection here. The connection between the offspring, that is, the children of Israel, the sons, those who are sons of Abraham by faith, spiritual offspring, not biological descendants, Rather, children of Abraham by faith. And just as faith was counted, imputed, reckoned for righteousness to Abraham, so too those who are spiritual sons, children of Abraham, by faith are reckoned righteous. That the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us, and as a gift it is received by faith. Now later on in the next chapter of Isaiah 54, We also have the same testimony, that not only, as Isaiah 45 said, in Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, and here in Isaiah 53, that that by the knowledge of the righteous one, many will be justified. Well, later on in Isaiah 54, this is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. We want to be very clear that this is an external righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It is not an achieved righteousness by the individual. It is not a a way of becoming righteous by the law, either man-made or divine. This is not an act of righteousness, but a passive righteousness. It is received as a gift. It is the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness of God himself. For Christ is Yahweh, our righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, of course, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this in his letter to the Romans, in which he says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And later on in Romans chapter 5, Paul will say that, therefore, Being justified, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And later on in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Of course, Paul is the one who says in Romans 3 that we teach that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So it's not an active achieved righteousness by works. Instead, it is a received passive righteousness that we have by faith in Christ. You see, Isaiah teaches us that it is by the knowledge of him, the righteous one, the servant of Yahweh, that we are to be justified. So the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 3, that I desire to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in death. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.